ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's I, your gracious host, Chris Denson. I'm trying to get as British as possible. <laughs> this is like this is like, this is you realize that you're the first person I've ever interviewed overseas. Wow. Like okay. at, at overseas. I feel very lucky. Do you? Um, why don't we tell people who you are uh, before I start asking you questions like that? So, <laughs> uh, my name is Abby Pugh, and I am a partner at a consultancy in London called Multiple. Um, so, is Hugh with a P? It's Hugh with a P, yes. Which uh, then reminded me of a, a rap artist, or a, like a would-be rap moniker. <laughs> and then you said to me. It, it's uh, it's actually Welsh, which is uh, even edgier. Okay, all right. I'm waiting for. I'll just wait for the album to come out. That's, um... <laughs> I think it's probably yeah, the, maybe the twilight stage of my career. <laughs> I launched my my rap my rap career. Yeah. Well, you have an amazing career so far, which I want to get into. Um, but first, I guess kind of explain what Multiple is and what it means to be a partner and what your role is at Multiple. Uh, so Multiple is essentially a management consultancy for scale-up businesses. We focus on Series A and B stage companies that are typically venture-backed and on a, a fast growth journey. Um, the business began based on the hypothesis that once you've built a great product, the next things that you need to scale are a great brand, some fantastic people, and a really clear growth strategy. And all of us coming from a background of either having been operators within uh, startups or investors in startups or founders of startups uh, notice this pattern of implosion often uh, <laughs> happening right. um, around the Series A stage because businesses often flush with cash uh, tended to uh, spend it on the wrong things. Yes. And so our, our mission is to become a trusted partner for them and help them ideally avoid failure entirely but you know sometimes it's inevitable and when that happens we want it to be because of factors outside of their control rather than things they could have avoided right um what's the silliest thing you've seen somebody spend money on so business-wise yeah um, Fish tank with mermaids in it. Like, <laughs> I mean, if such a thing were to exist, I, I don't. He's like, know. I, may, I actually might buy one. You piqued my interest. Uh, no, to be honest, I think we don't tend to work with a lot of people mm. who have that sort of uh, entitlement sort yeah. of culture. I'm so, to be honest, I'm yet to see it. Um, I think the ones. There's been some some famous horror stories of businesses, you know, the slides and the, the lavish parties mm -hmm, and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But as yet, and frankly, I, I hope never <laughs> will work with those kinds of businesses. <laughs> uh, I guess you won't be working with me. I just spent a bunch of money on this uh, this watch. So. It's, it's, it's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I probably got ripped off. And you uh, arrived in a very timely fashion, so it's doing its job so far. It's so far so good. Yeah. It is a ticking and a talking. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the word culture, which is also part of your job title slash description. Okay. What does culture mean in the context of what your job is? Right. At the, I think for me, culture at the simplest level is what enables businesses to fulfill their maximum potential. Um, and that's by 
both kind of philosophically and practically creating an environment in which people do their best work. And what that looks like will vary massively depending on what the overall purpose of the organization is, what kind of business you practices you want to cultivate, you know, what kind of people you want to attract and retain. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually a very open-ended uh, subject, I think. But Is there, because I feel like that's also one of the last things most founders think about, or mm-hmm. even large corporations, like is, you know, we make a product, we make a service, we have a brand statement, but we don't understand how to cultivate people. And especially mm-hmm. as the dynamics of, I wouldn't say the workplace, but just work mm-hmm. changes, right? Where you work, how you work, how long you mm-hmm. work, all different sorts of theories. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm on the board of a STEM school in Los Angeles and you know, a lot of it is doing away with what we thought mm-hmm. best practices in teaching mm-hmm. is, right? Changing the culture of education. Mm-hmm. The, so, you know, where are sort of the missteps? Uh, I mean, that you've seen or like what's what are some of the growing or changing dynamics that you've noticed? Um, I think you've raised loads of great points. <laughs> I really, in, just in that, I would love to dig into. But uh, to start with missteps, I think some of the classic ones that we see um, based on the stage of business that we look at and also the European market um, are silos developing between teams. Um, when you're 30 people and you're in a relatively small space, uh, it's fairly easy to keep open lines of communication and either through osmosis or through overhearing. Right, right. You know, you tend hallway to... Chats is hallway our chats, exactly. You tend to bump into people and ultimately most people tend to feel like they've got a fairly good sense uh, of what's going on, what everyone's working on, how what they're doing is affecting or not affecting things. Um, and you don't have to put necessarily loads of thought into it at that point. Um, The problems start to emerge when the more people you add into the mix, the more people need to understand what's going on. Who's who's that new person? Uh, We have an office in Lisbon. Um, All of these changes start happening and often concurrently at highly, highly uh, fast pace. And... If people don't feel a sense of certainty, just a baseline uh, about, you know, what's going on, that they're still valuable, that they have the information they need to get on with their job, mm-hmm. the likelihood of them being as productive as they can be is obviously going to diminish. So, I think internal communications, sexy subject that it is, um, <laughs> is is one of the the first areas that starts to break down. Right. Um, I think alignment becomes a lot harder when you have more stakeholders Mm -hmm. and I think focus um, is the other thing that tends to become harder to do it's weird it's weird how fear sets in when companies change and grow you know I had a chance to be number 70 uh, uh, of an employee at at an organization and within a year and a half there were almost 300 people there and like everyone was panicked and part of it was exactly what you said no one we didn't pump the brakes to just Mm -hmm. level set right even like one on ones probably more intensely or small groups or a town hall even Mm -hmm. you know um I don't have a question there. I just, it was just you no, just reminded but, me of No, but I, I think, no, but you, you raised a couple of, of, of interesting points with that, right? Which is one, 
how we as, as animals respond to change. Mm. And that, you know, is a subject in, in and of itself, which is deeply fascinating. And then the second aspect, which I think often gets overlooked, which is sometimes it can be hard when you start doing well. Right. Like a lot of the time people think that the cultural problems will manifest only when things are going badly. But sometimes when things are going really well, mm-hmm. your the talent is knocking on your door, you know, markets are prime for entering and you've got more opportunities than you know what to do with. I think for a lot of leaders that's actually equally if not arguably harder yeah. because how do you know what good looks like look, looks like in terms of hiring how do you know which sequence to enter all these different markets how do you know which opportunities to say yes and which to say no to right. for the short term and the long term so i think that's one of the reasons why culture can sort of start to or rather needs to be renegotiated off yeah. at that point so how do you, as a, either as Abby or as a multiple, go about coach, coaching an organization through that? Because that's because that's also whatever. What's the phrase? Fixing the train while it's moving, or whatever. Mm. So you, you know, it's like, and when you have the good problem of success, it's also like there's a dozen different ways you could go to mm. multiply that success. Mm. But what's the right way, mm. right? And how can you come in as an outsider and go like? This is what you need to be doing. I know mm. part of it's like personality management, and the rest mm. of it is like good information. But what's your process mm. of, of coaching? I think I think you've identified the two ways that, that we think about it. One, although I would never term it personality management, but more working with the individuals involved to think about what might be motivating their decision making or hindering it mm-hmm. is really important. Um, I think I've seen a lot of times founders paralyzed by the volume of opportunities that they're facing and, you know, understandably concerned that if they go down one route at the expense of another, it will later prove to be the wrong call. I can tell you, look, and I want you to keep going. Mm. This is probably the central, mo- at least for me as a host, the th- the thing I ask the most mm. um, as far as like, how do you go about decision making? But it's usually to the person who has to make the decision. Mm. So um, uh, keep going. Mm. But it's, uh, this is pretty fascinating. No, I think I, I'm actually studying um, coaching and organizational psychology at the moment on the side because um, apparently... I don't like free time, uh, <laughs> but uh, but but one of the things that we think about is, you know, what a, outside of the business considerations, mm-hmm. what as an individual might be influencing what you want to go for or not go for, and then cross-referencing that with, from a business standpoint, what might we want to go for? Might, we not what might we not want to go for mm-hmm. right and then looking at the sort of some of those and thinking okay which decisions make sense my my core principle on this though is that we are not here to make decisions for people we have expertise for them to leverage to this you as multiple are not here Exa- yes, yes 100% because I think 
I mean, to be honest, if I'm honest with you, and I, I don't know where we stand on, on we, we, we can be swe- honest with each other. swearing and language. No, and oh, please. I'll do my want, best I'd not to. I'd love to hear some British swear words <laughs> while I'm here. I try not to get too fruity with you. <laughs> but, um, but I really, I, I absolutely fucking hate <laughs> the, the idea that people can put themselves forward as having all of the answers as a coach for somebody else. Because at the end of the day, and this is a somewhat trite phrase, so forgive me, but I think it sums it up, which is, you know, each individual is an expert in their own life. And really, if you are any kind of consultant or advisor, your first job, in my opinion, is to enable that individual to into their own resourcefulness Mm -hmm. to make a decision. Sometimes that's going to require a little bit of directiveness. Right. And sometimes it's actually about just being there to facilitate a process of thinking, exploration, and reflection. And obviously, there are times where tapping into your own expertise might be useful. But more often than not, the answer lies within the person, right? Mm-hmm. The, the sense of what they want to do is there. And, you know, I, I think it would be incredibly arrogant to go into every client presuming that we were the best place people to tell them what to do. Right. I have no interest in telling people what to do. I personally respond terribly <laughs> to, <laughs> to anyone who tries to tell me what to so, do. So if so, that's the case, though, what are you best at? Me as an individual? Or the, you as an individual, probably more so the company, right? Because like you said, there are going to be other organizations yeah. say we come in, coach, we can help you scale, yeah. we can do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. We know the decisions you need to make. Yeah. And from a competitive standpoint or brand differentiation, however you want to mm-hmm. phrase it, what is that thing that is uniquely, you know, multiple mm-hmm. in that process? I think there are a couple of things. Yeah. Um, I think one is the people we hire. So we, we hire uh, what we term pie-shaped people. And by that, I don't mean apple or blueberry and rotund. No, I do eat a lot of pie. So yeah, I love pie. I, I miss Boston cream pie all the time. Mm. Um, but more in the, the kind of mathematical sense. And the idea behind that is everyone who is working with the companies at the stage that we're working at needs to have a generalist understanding mm-hmm. because a lot of the decisions that we are taking with them and supporting them on will impact so many different aspects of the business because of the small nature of it. If you've had some experience working in operations or marketing, that's actually really useful mm-hmm. in this context because you start to think, okay, when it comes to implementing this, right. I'm aware you of move it. one domino, you can mess up the holes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Most just, people just focus on the domino. You're like, oh. Yeah, and, and and frankly, in a really large corporation, decisions can be made, taken, and changes happen within a yes. division, and it doesn't touch anyone else, right? It's not the same when there's only 30, 50, 60 of you. Right. So I think that's really important. Um, and then beneath that generalist topping, we have two specialist areas that we look for in each individual. And that might be a soft skill, um, or it could be a sort of thematic expertise. So yeah. in my case, um, I originally studied as a linguist, so 
I have a strong uh, communications background, but I also have spent a lot of time on social anthropology and psychology and, you know, therefore culture. So mm -hmm. both on the sort of communications and culture side of things, those are my two yeah. main areas of focus. So I think we look for that within everyone we hire, which is not always the case, right? A lot of consultancies, you have incredibly smart people mm -hmm. who have spent their entire career really just focusing on one one thing, which is, say, brand, for example, or growth. Right. And I'm not denigrating that at all, but for the stage of business that we're at, I think it's really valuable for the, the clients that we understand the challenges of implementing sure. a lot of this stuff internally. Yeah. Um, you seem to be very empathic. Um, not not just from this conversation, but also in like digging up some of your writing, um, some of the things you even some of the stuff like you go from cultural anthropology to psychology, but you're also talking about startups. Um, what is what's your life philosophy, and how does that weave into into what you do? Life philosophy. Um, if you if you like, yeah. if you have if you have a, a motto, like I that, think. For me, there's, you know, it's probably worth saying I, I'm an atheist, so in terms of seeing, I'm not, I'm not fueled by um, a, a spiritual belief, but I'm, I guess I'm fueled by the belief that uh, it's incumbent on all of us as individuals to try and uh, enable other individuals to fulfill their potential I think the thing for me and that could be through education it could be through you know supporting a founder with brand strategy it could be putting money into a business it mm -hmm. could be you know within our any of those things within our uh, ecosystem but outside of that like I think we all have a part to play in enabling others well-being and by that I don't mean something fluffy and Bullshit. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you know, something tangible and yeah. real. Yeah. Because we all say it, and we all say it like, oh, well, we, you know, or we we at least hear it enough. Yeah. But to put it into practice in a way that's meaningful is a completely different animal. Yeah, I think it's hard because there's not. Um, I think there's a lot of narrative around. Well, certainly from from my experience, and, and this may not have been the case for for a lot of people, but you get exposed to uh, a lot of ideas around. You know it's through education or through health work or through charity work that you have a positive impact in a professional sense. Um, I don't think that's everyone's experience growing up, but certainly that was what I sort of observed. It was like business was to make money and then all this other stuff was like to do good. And what I, I'm really optimistic about and excited about is the fact you're getting more and more people now thinking, okay, well, I'm going to build this business. It's going to be for profit. Mm -hmm. But I have a ton of opportunity in doing so to make decisions that don't have to negatively impact people. Sure. Like how I treat my suppliers, you know, the, the energy supply I use to yeah. power my office. You know, you don't need to be a hardcore extremist, you know, sort of philanthropic right. altruistic person to make micro decisions every day that can positively impact people. Well, that's, that's one of the things I love about like a hidden layer of leadership is that yes you're running a business 
But when you realize that your success is putting food on someone's table or putting their kid in school mm. or, you know, helping their grandmother like through an illness because you're able to provide them with a the means of so mm. does that sort of pop up in your work with the companies that you work with? Um, do you get to that layer of granularity or is it more about infrastructural operation and decision making? No, I, I think we're. I, we're really fortunate that we have generally got great relationships with the founders that we work with, and you know I consider it, you know, it's part of my job and, and our responsibility as a as a team, whatever their version of success looks like and you know meaningful fulfillment looks like, we're there to enable that. Do you know Ricky Gervais? I do, yeah. Are you guys friends? He's, he's, I wish. He's he's brilliant. He's also an atheist. Yeah. Um, how else, just out of my own curiosity, how else has that shown up? How, I guess, how did you come to the decision? Of being, I think at some point you go like, you know what? Yeah. I think, I think, I think of the world a little bit differently than some people do. Um, and yeah, I guess I'll stop there. Like, how did that show up for you? It's a great question. I think really gradually, um, and without me really realizing, yeah. I think I, so. I I went to school from seven, where we had a, a small church service each day. Um, within the, it's very common in the UK, particularly in Anglican in Anglican schools, you have a small uh, ceremony. And I I loved the, a lot of the stories and the lessons and a lot of the philosophies, um, particularly this idea around you know, serving others and love being the most important mm -hmm. of all things. Burning bushes. And burning bushes kind of freaked me out. But, uh, <laughs> As a seven-year-old, you're like, what? I was like, that's kind of kind of cool at the same time. Right. Um, it's a downside better than my walkie-talkie uh, to be able to transmit <laughs> messages that way. Uh, but um, I think I think it was just more a gradual process. I, I, I can actually remember one particular session in, in chapel when... They were telling us the story about the widow who goes into the temple and a number of people up in front of her mm -hmm. making donations and very wealthy, successful leading figures of the local community. And they are putting great bags of wealth mm. down in the donation and the donation uh, trays. And she goes at the end and puts, you know, a fairly meager coin in there. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, okay, based on what you've seen, who do you think has been, has given the most, mm -hmm. been the most generous? And for some reason, the disciples still hadn't figured out that it's not, these things normally seem to be trick questions, but <laughs> they're like, oh, it's the guys who put all the, the bags of the coins in. Right. And Jesus is like, no, it's, she has comparatively way less, but as a percentage of her, she gave all she had. Like, so right. she's actually been more generous comparatively. And... I thought it was a really beautiful sentiment, but maybe it's because I'm horribly, uh, pro like, sort of pragmatic. My immediate thought afterwards was, but it, if she's given all of her money away to support the poor, then she has no money left. And right. how is that going to work out for her? She's going to just have to take some of back what she just gave. And it sounds ridiculous because ultimately there's a far deeper, more meaningful lesson sure, no. beneath it. 
but, but it, it is. I think it's the thing that people struggle with. You know, whether it's tithes and offering, you're supposed to give ten percent, but I only make X, Y, Z amount of money. Yeah. Like there's always that how sort much of is how enough? much. Yeah, how much giving is enough, or what is giving, and and, and yeah. you know, kind of like to dial it back. I think that is like the way you give your time and attention to these business and your resources is exactly what you said. And sometimes Mm. the argument is like, what is giving Mm. in the sense of biblically Mm. or otherwise? Um, uh, But yeah, so this actually kind of leads me to uh, three points I wanted to bring up because you wrote about these things. So these should be easy questions. Um, (laughs) You're gonna define. You're gonna define some words. Don't oh, look great. at those. I'm not looking. I'm not cheating. <laughs> I'm flying them. She's in. Mission. Yes. What is it? It's a quantifiable goal that constitutes a stepping stone on your process to on your on your journey to fulfilling your purpose. Um, vision. The vision. A vision is what the world looks like when you succeed in fulfilling your purpose so really it's it's kind of impossible because if you write your purpose well it should be something that's self-sustaining for for a really long time uh that's good because purpose was the last one but instead of defining it can you give me an example of a well-stated purpose i think Probably Nikes to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete with a little asterisk by athlete to caveat that if you have a... While supplies last. If you have... (laughs) (laughs) While supplies last and not in every size. um, If you have a body, you are an athlete. Mm. And I love that because that philosophy is translated through everything they put out into the world from just do it to the fact that they bring in both professional athletes and regular people do you find like that's fascinating and i didn't know that um do you find that these three pillars or tenets of culture are greatly overlooked because even in the case of nike right i I, I go to just do it because I'm a consumer, right? And I think, oh, that's what they stand for. But there's another layer, you know, a couple of layers mm-hmm. of depth beneath that. Do you find that these three components are overlooked? And if so, why? I think, I think they sometimes are overlooked. And I often think fairly so because it's not clear for a lot of people what they actually mean. And... Yeah. I also think that in the very early stages, um, sometimes they can be too restrictive. Um, you have to be a bit more open to the, pa- the fact they might change. Um, it's also, frankly, really, really hard to take an objective viewpoint on something that you are working on currently that you care a lot about. Right. And I don't think that that's a shortcoming. I think it's a natural consequence of being really dedicated to what you're doing and being in and amongst it one of the reasons why you know we have boards and we have advisors and we have external support people is because you know there is no substitute frankly for the honest feedback and perspective of someone that you respect and trust whether that's in business or any other walk of life and I think when it comes to defining things like purpose, mission, and vision, it's hugely valuable to think about what you 
stand for as a team, what you care about and why you're there and what you want to achieve, but then to be able to bounce those ideas off others, not, not because they should be changing your mind necessarily, but just to get a little bit of perspective on what might be driving you in case you're not aware. Mm. That's a, that becomes a very introspective process and probably a painful one like you know it's one thing to go through the pain points of your business it's another thing to go through the pain point of who the fuck are you mm. as a, <laughs> as a yeah. person right yeah. um but they, they go hand in hand like uh, there's another friend of mine who you know in her book nicole yershon uh she said there's no such thing as work life balance it's all life right and so that uh, again i don't necessarily have a question there but you just drew me mm. to that to that point no i think it's a great point because I think particularly for founders, the good and the bad of the company is often an extension of their own personalities in the early stages. You know, people who are really disciplined, people who are really creative, people who really uh, who delight in ambiguity, people who detest it. You know, like people who really emphasize emotional intelligence. Others who don't. You know. You see that when you go into a company and you engage with it. And so I think for founders in particular, being introspective and self-aware is not, it's not just about how you can be a better leader. Like it will directly translate into the way your business operates Mm. because your DNA is effectively embedded into every process and every design, whether you like My it or DNA not. My DNA is embedded in a lot of places. Too. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, it was too easy. <laughs> uh, who coaches you? You seem very, you know, I'm, like well, sometimes when you're at the you're at the apex and you're like the, I don't know, the director, if you will. Um, where do you, like, who coaches Abby or where do you get your own personal insights and introspection from? So I go to a Gestalt therapist. I don't know if you know what Gestalt is. No, I don't. So it's, there are... I mean, I do. My audience does it. (laughs) (laughs) There's, yeah. For for their benefit. Um, No, to be honest, there are a number of different coaching practices and therapy practices. Gestalt really focuses a lot on uh, context um, like, and thinking about the fact that we res- we behave and we respond to the situations around us as much as we are innately certain things, and I I just go there to get a constant sort of honest, frank, mm-hmm. you know, reminder about what I'm doing well and what I could improve on right. from someone who has no connection to. Uh, to to me as a person um i think sounds like church yeah i think for some people <laughs> it, it's it might be it might be going in and speaking with a with a priest and and this is why you know like as much as i'm atheist i wouldn't i think it's a great opportunity to go and reflect i think one of the things i really loved about chapel was was that um i think the the challenge for me in the UK a little bit at times because despite my um, BBC accent you know I'm actually a hybrid American Brit I think in America we have a much healthier attitude towards the idea of coaching therapy uh, talking in general um, in general but also but particularly about this kind of stuff Um, I think the UK has made incredible progress but it's still not yet at a place where 
people don't equate those things with weakness. I think it's also I think it's also a generational thing, right? Because my yeah. mom, for instance, I was like, you should talk to a counselor. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I'm like, that's not, I didn't say you were, but yeah. now you sound crazy. So, so um, I think that's part of it as well. Mm. But yes, I can see the, like the geographical context. Mm. I would almost say like we're the middle of America. I think you, t- you talk about California or New York, like, that's yes, fair, it's yeah. like, but you get to Idaho. It was like... No, you're right. That's a really important point. Like, my experience is so limited to being bi-coastal, right? So you're you're completely right to raise that. Thank you. I I really just needed a validation (laughs) that I was right about something. Um, A couple things before we go. Um, You spent some time in, like, conflict negotiation and risk management and... um, getting people out of water when they weren't supposed to be. Uh, I won't go to too much in the detail, but what I was curious about was, and you may, may want to touch on a little bit uh, as far as like the historical part of that goes, but what you're doing now is on, on the surface, a pretty big shift, right? If I look at like your LinkedIn and go like, what, you know, wait, risk management, and, you know, in regions of the world that no one's heard of mm-hmm. to, hey, founder, here's how you can run your company better. Um, what's the, what, what were you doing? And then what's the thread through it all? You know, what, what's the lowest common denominator that is you and all those different iterations of you? So, so what I was doing was supporting a team who were carrying out, um, typically kidnap and ransom negotiations. Uh, at the time, the main focus was on Somali piracy because it was during the high point of that uh, crisis. And my role in that was primarily research and linguistic and sort of social anthropology kind of contributions to the team, helping them when they weren't familiar, get a bit of context um, about factors on a psychological or cultural level that might impact negotiations. Yep. Uh, as well as just a lot of gathering data and monitoring things. Um, and I guess the common thread is, as individuals, we all have motivations. Sometimes they come into conflict with other people's motivations. And part of the reason why I, you know, I studied Arabic at university was because I... perhaps naively like I still believe that it's always possible to find some small slither of mutual interest that will enable people to understand each other a little bit better and maybe if they can't understand each other learn to simply live with each other or even cooperate on one particular thing in which case you know in this case it was the release of a, a vessel I guess and so when it comes to working with the companies that we work with now, the more we understand about why we're doing things and why we don't do things, mm-hmm. I think the better shot we have of making decisions that impact ourselves and others positively. 
so I guess yeah. that's the common thread. No, that's amazing. That's um, I, like it's like every answer leads me to ten more questions. But <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears for a, a quick second. Um, as far as the workplace goes. I think some of this is expectation management, right? Um, you know, and if you could just quickly go through generally where are we misstepping, where leaders expect something from team members, team members expect something from leaders, and then consumers expect something from this brand. Mm. And those are mismatched. Like, oh, I don't want to be here 12 hours a day, right? Um, or I didn't expect to have to come into the office all day, every day. Mm. Or the, you know, jar of crackers, thank you, but mm. that's not really a perk. Mm. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, well, just... Depends the, which, which crackers. Yeah, exactly. Not a true. butter? Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, see, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a Trisky guy myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think expectation management is a great way of framing it. Um, I kind of feel a bit like I'm saying all roads lead to self-awareness, but a big part of it is that. Um, one of the, the things we sometimes see is... We all walk around with assumptions or beliefs that we often think are shared by everyone else. Um, and it's from a place of those assumptions that, i.e., for example, a healthy work-life balance is a 90-hour work week and then, you know, a bit of, bit of time like watching Netflix at the weekend. There's a psychological term for this. Like how I do things, I expect everyone else to do them. And I forget, I there's there's this challenge of having the mental, a mental model that because we don't walk around necessarily broadcasting all mm. of our assumption beliefs and our mental models, it's really easy for us, natural, that we assume everyone else is operating to the same one. But without good communication and transparency and, as you say, expectation setting... Mm-hmm. Um, we can succumb to this misalignment, right? So, but you need to understand what your assumptions and beliefs are to start off with before you can even make that happen, right? right. And so does everyone else involved, which is why I think wherever possible, um, getting people in a room and facilitating a really open conversation about it can be super valuable, yeah. provided it's being led by somebody who knows what they're doing and isn't just going to ferment... Uh, strife and run right. away <laughs> um, but I think when it comes to to those things and find, finding a balance um, you really have to know like, and communicate because one of the things we also see and people talk about cultural fit a lot when it comes to hiring and I kind of don't like the term mm-hmm. because to me it implies that there is a triangular hole and a triangular peg needs to go into it um, whereas really it should be you want a little bit of conflict actually that comes Mm. out of diverse opinions like some core values where there's alignment and then there's some areas where maybe there's a bit of friction because you want to be well-rounded and i think cultural fit to me just says conformity as a a phrase which is why i kind of hate it but at the same time i think it does convey something positive in this regard, which is if you're going to manage expectations well and get the maximum productivity out and high performance from your teams, you need to be able to communicate, like, this is how we work here. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, what we value. This is what how we consider the best this way to do it. This is how we do it. Exactly. It's good acoustics in here. Yeah, this great. is how we do it. Don't, don't, because like I'll just. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it happening. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, I was yeah. like, I'm gonna keep going. And I saw it montage. <laughs> um, 
you end up attracting people who they might love the product you're building. Yeah. They might really care about the audience that you are trying to reach or really also want to help the consumers that you're serving. But if the, if your way of building that culture and, and building a high-performance team is not their way of, of working best, like it's never right. going to work out, right? Yeah. And for me, that when we talk about cultural fit and expectations management, like that's what you should be communicating at the outset to people. Yeah. Um, because they should be able to disqualify themselves at that point if they need to. It's better for everyone in the long run. Unless they just need the money. Then yeah. That's, that's, but I, and I know that's a whole other ball of wax because it's like the, the, the reason we make a decision to join or to hire is like there's a basic, you feel, the, you don't want to have the, you feel like you can't afford the patience, whether it's mm-hmm. like I'm missing out on income and I need this job and yes, I fit in. Yep. I'll, you know, I'll eat the crackers. I'm fine. Yep. Um, or it's like we we have clients breathing down our neck and we have to have this role filled and I know that, like that's a whole other thing but but you know what the latter example the thing I always say is like don't go to the supermarket when you're hungry <laughs> like try and go before you get hungry or at least make the shopping list before you get go, do yeah. you know what I mean? Because no, there's definitely some stuff, like in the literal sense, there's definitely <laughs> stuff in my cabinet, in my refrigerator. I'm like, why did I buy that? Like, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I, I fear I'm overextending the metaphor somewhat, but, but you know, this is again one of the challenges when the money comes in around Series A, which is finally I can bring the people and the skills I need to take some of this off my plate to right. move faster with this thing. But if you're going into those conversations or you're embarking on that search without a sense of what good looks like beforehand and what you're looking for, it's so easy to be swayed by the two-for-one offer, by that delicious thing that you just smelled when you're walking by. Mm -hmm. And as much as it seems like a banal metaphor, it's really apropos because I just think it's such an easy thing to do when you're in a place of need is to compromise. Mm. All right, we're going to wind down. You ready? The show's called Innovation. I won't hit you. (laughs) I've never been asked to do that on a show. Come on, hit me. Like, what? No. Uh, um, The show's called Innovation Crush. What do you currently see out in the world that you, and you've seen a lot, it sounds like, um, that you are currently crushing on that uh, gives you goosebumps? Gosh, that's a great question. Um... Oh man, what am I really excited about? Uh, it's it's actually not super recent, um, but in, in any, I think for for a lot of Americans right now, um, with the current macro political state, not all, but some, um, things are not uh, not feeling great at times, mm-hmm. and reading about Barack and Michelle Obama's foundation and the work they're doing, and particularly, you know, I follow um, Michelle Obama on Instagram. Like, I thought I had a big crush on her before. Like, <laughs> it seems to just grow and grow over time. Yeah. Like, I, I think the fact that she found herself put in a role that she didn't choose and a role that is kind to no one, mm-hmm. I, I suspect, and she grew into it with such grace and and dignity 
in the face of frankly like some disgusting behavior at times and made it her own and at no point did you ever feel like she was not being authentic Mm -hmm. and I think that authenticity becomes even more apparent now that she's out of the spotlight to a certain degree and and really not responsible for upholding any kind of pre-existing notions of what that role meant and she continues to behave in a way that I just find so just impressive as a person I, and I just think I know a lot of people say oh like if you know she's a great role model for women I think she's just a great role model yeah no she's a great individual yeah she's period. just a human that yeah. is just I just have so much respect for the fact that she has this incredible way of balancing being her own person and and serving the needs of others it's just a super impressive. I think it, it, there's an interesting poetry there because just going back to the idea of multiple, right? She's literally multiplied herself and her impact, right? And and I think that really is kind of what sums up this whole conversation in, yeah. in a sense. Um, last but not least, mm-hmm. complete this phrase for me. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yeah. Innovation to me is being open to the possibility that there is a better way of doing things. And with that, I thank you. How can we uh, find you? Um, where, where can people find some Abby Q with a P? Uh, the best way to find me is probably on Twitter, but I wouldn't hold your breath for a tweet because I would, I'm would i intermittent, to say the best, but I, <laughs> it's definitely the best way to reach me alternatively on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, thank you for, for joining us. This thank has been you. awesome. This is like truly enthralling. Uh, everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.